Gimel, Dalet, Hey. And so, on top of everything else, it's an acrostic poem. And now you say, well, why would God bother to see that the first word of each of each verse follows the order of the alphabet? I don't know. Except maybe that's the way in which the Israelites memorized the Psalms. They remembered that this is an alphabetical order. If they could get the first word according to that alphabet, then they would get the rest of the verse. Which would, if that's true, then God was wanting this as the most profound and elementary foundational uh, understanding to be communicated to his people, that they would memorize it. So here's a, um, a foundational thing in verse 21 and 22. The wicked borrow and do not pay back. But the righteous are generous and keep on giving. That's a characteristic of righteousness. They don't wait for repayment. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. In these two verses, we see the dualistic uh, statement of reality that this psalmist perceives. The blessed and the cursed, the righteous and the wicked. It falls into a whole way of perceiving and that there's a consequence for righteousness or for wickedness that results in blessedness or curse being cursed which is deuteronomic this is a this is the this is a kind of view of reality one would obtain by being steeped in the book of deuteronomy the book of deuteronomy from beginning to end is filled with acts and their consequences. This is what will befall the righteous and the faithful. This will be the experience of the wicked. And warnings to avoid the one and to pursue the other. So that the psalmist himself is steeped in the law, L-O-R-E, as well as A-O-W, of the tradition of Israel as it was given by God. Israel is a study because it's the only nation that has had an explicit foundation laid for it by God, through their messengers, through Moses, through the law, through the prophets, through the psalmists. This is a way of life invested in the people, a heavenly mode of existence given to an appointed nation that they in turn should demonstrate it before all the nations that all the nations might come to their God. This is why it's such a precious object of study. It's not that we are... Uh, have a quaint interest in Israel because they're an ethnic people with an interesting background in history. They are the textbook, mm -hmm. God's intended textbook for all nations, and especially for the church that is called to be the continuation of their Israelite faith. So this is a Deuteronomic sense of blessing and curse, the wicked, the righteous. These are the only two categories, and in fact, when the age ends, the book of uh, Revelation seems to indicate that that the wicked are those who dwell in the earth. The righteousness are drawn from all of the four corners of heaven. Does that mean their physical location? There's earthlings and those who dwell in heaven. They all occupy the same earth together, but they occupy it differently. Got that? You don't understand that? Okay. Yeah. Those whose hearts fail them for fear fail them for the things that are coming upon the earth. They're rooted in the earth. They are earthlings who dwell in the earth. They are the unrighteous. But those that are heavenly minded, as Paul, and have their citizenship in heaven, and who see the things that are eternal but invisible, live differently and are even the object of the bitterness of those who are earth dwellers. It's like a conflict between 
the heavenly minded and the, those who are occupied at the level of the earth that when the smoke clears at the end of the age there's nothing else but these two classes that the neutral are going to be moved or forced mm -hmm. to the one yeah. radical alternative yeah. than the other so when the judge, God's judgment comes it falls upon those who remain in the earth as earthlings but they don't inherit it those that inherit it will be the, the heavenly people of God and their righteousness will then pervade the earth the right to live in the earth and dwell in the earth is reserved for the righteous and it will be given them as an inheritance that even when Abraham was in the land of promise it was for him a strange place mm. he walked through it as a stranger because it was not yet the Kairos time mm. when it would be the inheritance yeah. that would come after with his resurrection so resurrection our confidence and our belief that we will be raised from our death let the world pulverize us take our heads off with the guillotine mm -hmm. or demolish us so we whatever the form God is jealous over every molecule yeah. and he will restore it yeah. whole in a glorified body yeah. and we will recognize each other you'll not see Art with his gut hanging over his belt that I'll be slim <laughs> <laughs> we will have the we will have the a body appropriate to what we are in the I'm sometimes embarrassed to look in the mirror you know, look what age is doing but the body that we will inhabit gloriously and eternally I believe is appropriate to where we are inwardly and spiritually and we'll know each other how is it that the three that, that Jesus took to the Mount of Transfiguration that they saw Elijah and wow. Moses conversing with Jesus no, about his right. demise yeah. did they have a sign around them this is Elijah right. this is Moses because what was visible in their glorified bodies was what, what these men quintessentially were as God had finished with them and formed them eternally as masterpieces of his um, sanctifying work so this this matrix if I'm getting fancy here the, the psalmist speaks out of a deuteronomic understanding of reality that he himself has gotten out of the Old Testament but he's reflecting it now poetically but his understanding is formed and predicated on Deuteronomy that's the Hebrew faith and that faith is completely at odds with the understanding of men in society like for example to convince Jews now that they have that they are culpable and guilty with their nation that they were brought under a covenantal requirement before God made by their fathers and the fact that they were born in modern times and were not there at Sinai to give assent to that covenant does not exempt them they are under obligation to be fulfillers of that covenant though they were born after the time and that they are identified with the sins of their fathers who have failed in it and God waits for that repentant acknowledgement this sense of culpability and identity with your nation for sins that took place before your time is completely at odds with the modern um, what's the word juridical sense of personal responsibility for, person, for, for guilt but it's a biblical view it's a Deuteronomic view and it's God's view men will be held accountable for it whether they subscribe to it or not and part of our responsibility as the church especially toward Israel is to persuade it that this is God's view and that they will be held liable that ignorance of the covenant does not exempt you from its requirements of blessing or curse 
That's one of the important statements made in that Holocaust book. And it's going to move people to indignation. They are going to rail against that and foam at the mouth because it's contrary to the popular and modern concept that you're only responsible for your own acts. God says, no, Israel is a nation and you are in that identification and you're responsible and in continuation with the sins of your fathers until you acknowledge those sins and repent of them. I think in Leviticus it says explicitly, when you will acknowledge the sins of your fathers and that the judgments with which I have judged them were righteous, then I will honor or remember the covenant with you and that you will know God and so on and then blessings will flow. Something's required that is outside the modern mentality of contemporary people, but it is foundationally biblical. And we are a people called to live by that and to make that known. You shall be witnesses unto me is more than stuffing a scripture verse uh, in, the, in the pocket of a Jewish waiter as he bends over your table in Israel, which I've seen people do. I went to Israel and I witnessed the Jews. I put a scripture verse in the man's pocket as he bent over. Well, I left one in the telephone booth, hoping that someone would find it. You shall be witnesses unto me is invitation to martyrdom. It's the forfeiting of the crucified Christ that has left the people of Israel without any knowledge either of sin or judgment or of the mercy of God. Because in, then what, in that one act of Jesus' willing suffering unto death is the whole demonstration of God as God is and man as man is. Both the nature of sin and the requirement of a righteous God to expiate it by the shedding of his own blood, which is the expression of his mercy. So in one demonstration we have both sin, judgment, and mercy demonstrated. But if we refuse that demonstration and say, well, this was only a, a political usurper who acted unwisely and brought upon his head the wrath of, of the um, Romans, we missed the whole thing entirely. And therefore, we set in motion circumstances by which we will ultimately be the victim of that lack of understanding. Because that would have convict, con, con, uh, convicted us and proved that there's no man good, no not one that Jesus was suffering and dying for the sins of all men everywhere and at all times. And to not see that is to leave us with a view of man that is not God's view. Mm -hmm. That man is somehow good and is being made progressively better. This is a humanistic notion of man completely at odds with the biblical view in which God says, there's no man good, no, not one. If God were to mark iniquity, who can stand? So we, we have a choice before us. Modern man has a choice. His subjective persuasion of his own virtue as many Jews have told me I've never killed anyone my mother will tell me that but it's not an issue whether you've killed anyone it's who you're capable of killing and whom you've killed with your mouth what murders you've performed in your spirit what adulteries you've performed in your imagination your unwillingness to see Christ crucified is to get you off the hook in terms of the indictment that stands against you according to the word of God faith is believing God's statement as against any subjective impression to the contrary. God says, I'm a sinner, I don't feel that way. In fact, what Jew does? They're self-exalting, they're self-congratulatory. Uh, they believe themselves to be the, the great gift to mankind. But what does God's word say? And it's on the basis of God's word, which is God's view, that men will be held eternally accountable before him. We have the obligation to persuade men of that truth though it's totally contrary to their whole subjective view of themselves and of reality of the world. We have an insane view to, to 
to commend to men. It's an invitation to disaster. And the only thing that can give it any enablement is that God says that this view is the power of God itself. This gospel is the power of God unto salvation. This ridiculously contradictory view that is so offensive to human sensibility, mm. human intelligence, is itself the power of God. Mm. Don't look for an intellectually credible statement. You're not going to get it. This is going to be a piece of foolishness that God lay aside his deity, came down to earth, was born in a virgin, lived in a, a, born in a stable, lived a life of insignificance, and in three and a half years had a public ministry and died on the cross as a criminal. Is, is the Messiah of Israel? And very God, I'm not giving you a credible story to tell. I'm giving you one that is calculated to be offensive to human sensibility, human understanding, and human intelligence. And you have got the faith to believe that though it's going to be mortifying to speak that to an intelligent Jew, that when you will speak it, it will be power to bring conviction unto salvation. And men will either say, with trembling, having heard it, what must we do to be saved? or cast you out and, and cast you over the brow of a hill. You'll either experience a persecution or the gratitude of men who are saved, right. but there'll be no middle ground. And that this issue is more than just individual salvation. It's the redemption of a nation. Because God's made a promise to its fathers and its patriarchs that they would uh, be a nation of priests that light unto the world, that we would bless all the families of the earth. Their salvation is the issue of nations. It's the end of of murder and mayhem and rape and incest and, and, and school uh, shootings and every vulgar, obscene thing that is distorting reality. So it's more than just the issue of even a soul being saved. It's a nation being restored. But would we have the courage and the conviction that these views, so contrary to modern understanding, are the views of God and that we can commend them to men as being the very foundation of reality itself. Remember what they said about Paul? Much learning hath made him mad. They threw dust up on their heads. They vowed not to eat until this man was dead. Yeah. He's not fit to live. He's, he's insane. He's taking us away from our traditions and what we've understood about uh, Judaism. Yeah. And he's calling us to something so totally opposite to what we've understood. Because he claims we've had a vision on the way to Damascus. He's not fit to live. He's a threat to all that we understand. And that's why the wicked persecute the righteous. They're a threat. They're an intimidation. They're an indictment. That if they didn't exist, they could get, uh, get by with it. Okay, our steps are made firm by the Lord. Verse 23. When he delights in our way, though we stumble, we shall not fall headlong, for the Lord holds us by the hand. Huh? Our steps are made firm, but we'll stumble? Huh. Though we walk through the valley of death? No. <laughs> We fear no evil, but the Lord is my shepherd. That means he guides me, but I pass also through the valley of death. What kind of guidance is that? What, this, this sounds like utter contradiction of paradox, and it is. It's the paradox of the faith. You'll see many scriptures that are paradoxical. In, in yesterday's um, book of Proverbs, chapter 26, it says, Don't, don't, don't instruct the fool. He'll only um, you know, spit it out at you. The very next verse says, Except that you instruct the fool. Hey, come on, dear Lord, make up your mind. You know, what is it, the one thing or the other? It's both things. Our faith is paradoxical. And if we have not a taste for the paradoxical, for the contradictory, we'll be offended by it. So we have to roll with the punches. 
God says this, but he says also that. Give me grace. When we become inducted into the paradoxes of God, what is implied is that reality is too rich and too complex to reduce to formulas. That we have to make allowance, even what seems to be contradiction. You know what I've learned in my studies? What seems to be paradoxical and contradictory, if I persist, waiting on the Lord or pressing for for his revelation, that when it comes, it's the deepest revelation of what would otherwise be lost. And once we get a, a taste for that, we will look at each other differently. This is what I want to say. We will have an ability to bear one another in a way that will not require. Remember the spirit of requirement that you've got to be this, you've got to be that. How come? There's a much greater liberality and allowance for each other because we recognize we can't reduce men to a formula or to a principle. It's too, they're too rich, they're too variable. We don't know their whole history so, or their future. It would result in an attitude of much greater patience and forbearance with one another once we have been inducted into the paradoxical truths of God. It's the religionist who's pharisaical, who's got it all nailed down, who's condemning. If there's any deviance from what he thinks ought to be proper behavior, but one who senses the paradoxical truth of God, the seeming contradictions, is also affected in a way to relate to his own brother in a much more patient and forbearing way than would otherwise be so. This is, a, this is the consequence of coming not into the truth of God as doctrine, but the spirit of that truth. Imagine reducing this glorious faith into some predictable Sunday service mentality, that you know what's going to come, and there's the program when you come into the building, that this glory, the richness of it, the texture, the reality has somehow been reduced to a predictable formula, and we call that Christianity. What? What, a, what, a, what should we say? Like a, a slight against God that this could be reduced to that kind of a thing as a Sunday addendum. This is too glorious. <laughs> Just to get again to the heart of this, how can we resolve that our steps are made firm by the Lord and yet somehow within those steps there's the possibility that we can stumble. But when we stumble, it's not going to be fatal. We'll not stumble headlong so as to break our necks. But maybe that stumbling is instructive. Maybe it would save us from an arrogance of a walk that was so impeccable that we think ourselves the supreme saint and would look at others as being of a lesser kind. If it has no other function but that, it's worth it. And David had to stumble and stumble grievously. But somehow God was in those steps. It's not that we are absolved from our stumbling as if, well, he made me do it. But somehow the God who directs our steps allows for a stumbling in those steps that is salutary and healthy and needful. And can we receive that? But we'll not, we'll not rush headlong. It'll not be a, a full disaster because the Lord is all the while holding us by the hand. Come on. Look, I know you're far too busy. You've got end time purposes to fulfill. I'm, I'm just Joe Blow. You're holding me by the hand. You've got that kind of intimate, direct, Amen. patient relationship Amen. with every saint at the Amen. same time. You have to mastermind the entire economy of God and bring it to fruition. Yes. Yeah. Talk about the knowledge of God that's, that breaks your heart. That God can be taken up with his ultimate purposes that you think would fully occupy him and yet involved in detail with the life of every individual saint even to plot and to prepare and to fit them for stumbling because stumbling will serve the purposes of God as well as walking uh, correctly in the path of righteousness.
Talk about being led. Talk about exquisite provision from God. Talk about love. Wow. I mean, if, if, if I'm a little bit put out with having to do this all the time for my mother, and how come you're not here? It's, 12, it's 10 to 12 years, you know. What, what a statement of God's patience and love. Right? Wouldn't we be astonished to learn that Paul's whole understanding of that was drawn from the Psalms? That what he, what he later expressed apostolically had his formation in his life as a Jew who was immersed in the Psalms. It gave him a breadth of understanding that he later exemplified him and addressed to believers of all generations. So much was he steeped in, the, in these realities. Okay. Well, what do you do with verse 31? 3031, the mouth of the righteous, the mouths of the righteous are the wisdom, their tongues speak justice, the law of God is in their hearts. Their steps do not slip. Talk about paradox. We've just learned that we're almost inevitably going to stumble. Their steps, steps do not slip. That their stumbling is not a slip. Yeah. It's somehow it's a preordained design in the wisdom of God to humble us and to show us that we're never in a place that we think ourselves absolute and that we have arrived. That this, these are the ordained steps of God. That the slipping is a step. So the same psalmist says elsewhere in the 22nd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. His staff and his rod, they comfort me. That wherever it guides and leads me, I know it's good. Maybe just the last few verses from 37 to the end of the psalm. Mark the blameless, behold the upright. For there is posterity for the peaceable. You know, God is so opposed to violence. Uh, I, I told uh, a, a, a Muslim, I said, the very fact that you justify the use of violence is ipso facto conclusive proof that the God whom you celebrate is not God. Wow. My, the God who is God does not employ violence. He despises violence. Mm-hmm. Violence is the final act of men who are godless. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when they will exercise it in the name of God, you see the most grievous betrayal of God. Yeah. Even the church in the slaughter of its own innocent and the modest who burned at the stake in the name of God. The terrible contradiction of God. He's peace. He's the prince of peace. He abhors violence. If there's one thing that frightens me about Ben Israel is that there would ever be an eruption that would result in violence. Yeah. Ooh, like the grounds would be desecrated. We would have to uh, tear our clothing and, and throw dust in our heads and call a fast. That, that something violent has erupted here and invaded and, and affected the atmosphere that God has established, the holy investment. It's abhorrent. It's a self-generated or demonically generated physical act by which one inflicts himself upon another. Uh, I can't stand graffiti. One of the most painful things on this last trip overseas was to see the graffiti sprawled out on buildings. And what was formerly East Germany and that the buildings had never been touched or repaired through the whole of the communist regime are now in places of restoration. Some of you have seen those photographs. And here's these buildings, newly plastered over in beautiful new facade and, and all over it, as far as hands can reach, are these big, painted, ugly graffiti. You know what graffiti is? Yeah. Painting on buildings, words and your, your club name or whatever. And you know what the remarkable thing is? Is the similarity in all of the graffiti. It's as if they went to the same school to learn how to do it. 
but what it is is that they were, they were motivated by the same spirit and the thing that kills me is how dare anyone despoil a piece of property that is not his own how dare anyone despoil a piece of property but to, to think that you have the liberty to take someone else's property and to desecrate it is an act of violence and it will not take long before you go from the graffiti on buildings to destroying them does not take long before you burn books before you burn them and so uh, Nazi Germany is a, is a textbook case for us of men who have allowed that in fact Hitler came to power through violence they became such a terror this Nazi party and Hitler youth that they intimidated their political opposition and if they couldn't they would kill them graffiti is violence so we, we need to know that violence what, what, what's trying to define this it, it, more often than not it is a physical act that has consequence for those of whom it's inflicted but it's a kind of rupture it's a kind of violence against the laws of God and of nature it's controverting the justice and equity and beauty of the Lord it's, it's doing damage to his nature it's interesting that the judgment of God is upon those who spoil the earth do you ever see that? Is I think it's in Revelation those who have spoiled the earth that's why David could not stretch forth his hand against Saul mm -hmm. though he was a great warrior what's the spirit of violence what's the anatomy of violence we had a dictionary looked it up and saw the etymology of the word how is it broken down does it have a Latin root so that, that kind of thing is very illuminating that's why a Christian should not be without a dictionary remember where Paul says in 1 Corinthians the two men going to the court of the world to resolve believers resolve the difference going to the world's court so how can you do that he was shocked better to allow yourself to be defrauded better to lose what is at stake here than to rupture something by the violence of a court and their decision of unregenerate men so the way of peace well, this, this is something to contemplate the prince of peace the shalom of God what is that it's more than the absence of uh, force it's a presence it's a way that is at, out of the very heart of God he abhors violence he's the God of peace and not in some kind of cheapy way in which somehow the issue is made a non-issue the issue is seen through those that speak the truth in love uh, establish the church the church in maturity and in righteousness so it's not a God who sweeps things under the table quite the contrary he still has a controversy with Israel he still has issues that they have not yet heard or answered he still has the indictment against them uh, by the prophets who, whom he raised up early and sent to them day in and day out. So he's not one who sweeps the issues under the carpet, but he confronts us with issues in order that we might come to a true resolution that is peace, which is the peace of righteousness. The fruit of righteousness is peace. And if there's going to be an atmosphere that exudes the shalom of God, it's not because we have avoided physical conflict, it's because it, the place and its life is established in the righteousness of God. Peace is not a cheapie. Violence is the impatience of men. Here's the definition right up ahead. The vi the violence is the impatience of men to obtain an end that, that procures their satisfaction without looking to God or waiting on God. And so that's what war is between nations. And the heck of it is that their ministers bless them and send them forth with the blessing of their God as if what they're doing was some kind of a holy crusade God condemns violence except the violence that takes the kingdom what kind of violence is that? this is 
This is hyperbolic language. Hyperbole. H-Y-P-E-R-B-O-L-E. What does that mean? Exaggerated language. The use of language to speak in an exaggerated way in order to make a telling point. That God would use violence with, in connection with the kingdom of God has got to arrest your attention. Yeah. And only the violent take the kingdom. What does that mean? Well, it's certainly not going to be the, the, the uh, fruit of the indifferent. Because the kingdom of God is antithetical to the kingdoms of this world. It's going to be in a disjuncture and a tension and opposition against the wisdom of this world. So to desire that kind of life and that reality and that kingdom and to seek to it requires a certain violence, a certain intensity of spirit, a certain willingness for sacrifice, a pulling out the stops, so that often when I'm speaking at churches, my, my invitation at the end is, how far are you willing to go with God? Oh, you think you've gone far? Have you gone to the Fathermost? Are you willing to pull out the stops in every last reservation? How, how far are you willing to go? Well, really, what I'm saying is, how violent are you wanting to be? It's one kind of a determination to be evangelistic and most of the normal activities of the church. But in this final and ultimate conflict against the principalities and the powers of the air, something is required beyond that, and he calls it an utterness toward God. And that, uh, that phrase has stuck in my spirit. Again, it's not an, uh, a thing that will be explained by running to a dictionary. What's this utterness? We don't even have the word. We don't use the word in our conversation. Utterly something. Utter. Utterness is something to the very extremity. There's nothing beyond that. It's, it, it's at the perimeter. It, it borders on insanity, this utterness. I, I love, for example, the scene in Hamlet. You know this play by Shakespeare? Where Ophelia, his love, commits suicide while he's away. She's a tortured and disturbed girl. And he comes back in time for her funeral. And you remember the, the, the um, guy is digging her grave, the, the grave digger, and finds the skull of the old court jester. And Hamlet, not knowing for whom the grave is yet dug, speaks in his philosophical way, Oh, um, I forgot the name of this jester. Where, where are your jibes and your, and your jokes now? Now that you're reduced to this. And he finds out, and then he's hardly finished with this soliloquy, this statement, when he sees the funeral procession. And all of a sudden realizes that the one who's going to be buried is the woman whom he loves. Died by her own suicide. And they came to mourn at the grave. But he leaps into the grave. He says, your mourning, your sorrow is kitty stuff. My anguish of soul requires me to leap into the grave. It's, a, it's an act of utterness that makes Hamlet Hamlet. And it's the quality that God looks for in his people that will distinguish the kingdom of God and obtain it. We are much too casual. One day for us is like another. We don't know what sacrifice really means. And therefore the kingdom does not come. And uh, Washman Nee was right. The last day's battles, what is before us, will not be met in a one except by those who have an utterness toward God and will pull out all the stuffs. So, but the wickedness and the violence of transgressions uh, of, the, of the, the transgressions of violence of the wicked will be altogether destroyed. And even their posterity shall be cut off. Those that are descendants will suffer for that as well. In verse 38. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their refuge in the time of trouble, which implies 
that they're not exempt from such a time and that in fact their trouble is the very consequence of their walk. They would not be experiencing this trouble if they were lackadaisical everyday saints. They would not be bothered. It's because they are saints of this kind who have pulled out the stops and have this utterness toward God that marks them before the powers of the air as ones to be opposed. The trouble comes not because of their indifference but because of their dedication. God does not say uh, that you're going to be absolved from it. In fact, he says, the warns us quite the contrary, that this kingdom will not come except with, how does he say it? Uh, Frank would know this. In this, in, this, in this life, you will have persecution. You will have. It's the name, name of the game. Not a consequence of your sin, but the consequence of your righteousness before God. But he is their refuge in that time of trouble. Now that is mind-boggling. How does an invisible God become an actual place of refuge? This is more than metaphor. This is more than poetry. He's talking about something absolutely substantial and actual, which will be the preserving of body and soul in time of trouble. If we have come to a relationship with God, that we can come into Him, where He Himself constitutes the refuge. Not His provision. Not a building, not a, a, a community, not a place in the country, but He Himself is the refuge. Only for a psalmist who has come into this kind of relationship. And so... God is showing us that there's a place that we would not have thought available that the psalmist has found that the righteous of all ages have found and that will be available to us also but the time of trouble is certainly before us the Lord helps them and rescues them he rescues them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him God is actual he's more than a pious abstraction he himself is a fortress and a refuge and my rock. This is the way the psalmists speak because they're not just being poetic. This is the most definitive statement of what is the foundational reality of their life. God has become this. And that's what is before us as a last day's provision. He helps them and rescues them. He's not afar off. He's an intervening God that comes into your situation in his own time and will bring his resolution. What a God is this who takes us by the hand and intervenes and comes in to help and to rescue. And if I know anything about him, it will be at the last moment. But I mean the last moment. The very last moment. Just about when you're ready to expire and throw in the towel and this is hopeless and where is he? Just as, as you're sinking then he shows himself in the dawn after the great darkness and even despair in him what, what, you know what there's no one that uses that phrase more than Paul in him in him I move and live and have my name in Christ in 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 that's got to be more than some kind of poetic fancy or use of words in a figurative way but that there's a literal actual way of being in God it's one thing to be near him, to sense his presence. And I'm always a little bit disturbed when I hear believers talking about, if God will do this for me or give me a help, then I will do. As if there are two entities, ourselves and God, separate from and distant from each other. But to be in him is to dissolve one of the two entities. 
namely ourselves. To be in God is to say that you can't tell where you end and he has begun. That for you to live is Christ. And that Christ is indestructible. He's a place of safety and refuge because what can touch him? He's very God and he has uh, more than any other tasted death for every man and defeated death through death. So what can the enemy bring that can anyway intimidate or threaten God? I don't know of a safer place than the God who has himself passed through death and this life forevermore. Mm -hmm. But the question and the issue is how do we, how do we come in him? Are we content to be alongside him? Is there something about preserving our own independent identity that keeps us from this union? That we actually prefer to be helped by God rather than to be in God? Because if we still exist and have our own identity and do for God, then we're the object of the attention of others. We can receive compliments and we kind of enjoy doing for God. But to be in God means that that personality no longer is. He prefers to be dissolved and not have a status and identity independent from an other than God that the Lord might be all in all. And Jesus himself comes to that place. I think in 1 Corinthians 15 that in the end that he gives over the kingdoms to the Father that, that, that the Father is all in all and Jesus has even given over his own distinction and identity that the Father might be supreme and the Lord over all. What a final statement from the Lord even after his resurrection and ascension. What a statement from the Father that he gave to the Son a name above every other name that can be named. That there's no name that can be named that is greater than the name of Jesus. That the Father was willing to, de to defer to the Son and give him an honor that he should reserve only for himself. And that the final act of the Son is to give over the kingdoms of this world which he has obtained through the church and give it to the Father that the Father might be one all. What are we seeing from the Godhead itself? A willingness to give up even their essential identity and that we are called to that. But as you know from reading the book Reality, it's one thing for a sheep to be slaughtered and it's another thing for a pig. Remember that? How we learn right out here for all of the altar calls that I've seen or given myself, when I saw the way that sheep went to its death, you didn't hear a peep. It went quietly to its slaughter. But the pig hanging up from its hind hoofs was squealing. You never heard more ungainly, unearthly, demonic shrieks and cries coming out of a piece of protoplasm that came out of that pig. And the brother put the knife right in it. And it still continued to howl. And finally, when that thing was blood drained and was finally dead I never saw any die harder we opened it up and where the guy had plunged in the knife was right in the heart the heart had been perforated by that thrust and the pig still was squealing so does protoplasm at even that level have such a determination to preserve its own existence and identity so show me the saints who are going to make an altar call and give God their all without squealing and shrieking and howling and digging in their feet I don't believe it. We're not in him because we still want to maintain our separate, distinct identities. We want to be used by the Lord. We want to be blessed by the Lord, employed by the Lord, but we don't want the Lord to be all in all. 
We want to cut a little swath also. It's something like what Adam said of the conflict that came to him in these days when he realized God's preeminent intention for Israel. That Israel is going to be the first and foremost of nations and receive such a glory and honor and a new name. And he said, but well, what about me? What about the church? What about the eldest son who didn't want to see this lavish display for the younger because he was, did not know that the father had all things? There's something in us that wants a place. And that's why we don't see the resurrected Christ as often as we want. We see men of accomplishment and we're impressed by them and in measure blessed by them. But it's another thing to hear the Lord, see the Lord, and know that what we're hearing and receiving is not the man, but a life in and through the man that is not his own. Because whatever was in that man has been given over unto death. And the Lord will test that and prove whose life it is that is being lived. Paul is a glory. Paul is an apostolic masterpiece. Not because of anything in him that's Jewish or distinctive or intellectual or courageous. It's because he surrendered every one of those attributes unto death and counted it as dung. He despised it that he might win Christ. And what we have in Paul is nothing less nor other than the continuation of the Lord. And therefore there's no man in the, in the New Testament who uses the phrase more frequently than Paul. In him. In him. In him. Because Paul was in him. Paul is Jesus. Paul is the resurrected continuation of that life. And that's why he's the most formidable of all apostles. And that what he wrote has become foundational to our New Testament faith. And then where he says, uh, I received this by inspiration. But another person says, but I give you this as an opinion. But 2,000 years later, his opinion has been received as being every bit as much as what he had received from as revelation. Because Paul's opinions were God's. His thoughts were not his thoughts, but God's thoughts. Imagine to come to a place like that. Do you desire a place like that? Are you willing for a place like that? What happened when the world laid its hands on the Holy One of Israel? Talk about not being able to bear the words of a prophet. They couldn't bear his existence. And what they ventilated on him was the, the fury of violence, anger, bitterness, and wrath that he was marred more than any man. He had no beauty, no comeliness that we should desire him. Is not the statement of Jesus in his natural life. It's the statement of Jesus after he's been battered to a pulp by the forces of darkness who hated his guts because the life of God was the life of Jesus. What then will be our future? No wonder we want to play this game discreetly and not give ourselves over to that totality or we will be as much an object of the fury and the hatred of the powers of darkness as was Jesus. Isn't it a remarkable thing that we should be led through an examination of an Old Testament song into the ultimate consideration of New Testament truth? You think that's accidental? I think it's altogether appropriate and perfect. So I want to conclude with a prayer and read to you what I wrote sometime early this morning while you were turning over on the other side as I was myself reviewing and wrestling with this particular psalm. I wrote... These are classic psalmic, P-S-A-L-M-I-C, observation and prescriptions set in as an overview for all of life, a prescription of ultimate reality, 
And then I wrote, how real is it for you cats? How much would you desire all this as a predicate of your present life and being? How much would I choose to make this foundational to my own life and continuance in God? This is more than a psalm. This is a slice of the reality of God. This is ultimate prescription. A predicate is something upon which everything else is founded and from which everything issues. Just a psalm, Psalm 37. I wonder what Psalm 38 is going to be. 39, 102. Rich. So, Lord, we could not have gotten this from, man who, from a man who just had a flair for fiction or poetry and knew how to put nice words together. This man has learned something at a school of another kind. This knowledge of God is not cheap. And it won't be cheap for us, my God, to enter in and to exhibit also who desire to be the sweet singers of Israel of our own generation. And so we thank you, my God, for this excursion today. What a review, what a grappling with fundamental reality as you see it that is so in opposition to the world's. It's another way. And Lord, we have to say that we love this way. We delight in this way. We want to exhibit this way. We ask for grace, my God, to walk in it. Take us by the hand, even as the psalmist said, and lead us, my God, into paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And I ask, my God, that your indulgence, your love to us, you, you have not withheld a thing. You have poured out. You have spoken to us like sons and daughters. You, you have not treated us with kid gloves. You have not made this a school. This is an event, my God. This is a dealing. You have poured your heart out to open up our understanding and we only ask that you give us the grace to respond to you in kind that we will not be among those who withhold but that we will come my God to an utterness toward God you'll have us Lord that we can would say in complete truth for us to live as Christ we have no separate identity there's nothing that we want to see honored or acknowledged or uh, esteemed by men that if we do anything it's your doing uh, yes. even your faith we live by the faith of the Son That's of God right. and not even our own That's faith right. for our own faith is inadequate even That's to grasp right. this Amen. so Lord may you be all in all give us the spirit of Jesus who having suffered all things turns the whole thing over to the Father give us the spirit of the Father who turns all things over to the Son a complete abandoning of any interest in oneself and everything defers to the other Oh, may you have a church that is like you, my God, that will reveal your glory in the earth. And we thank you that you've given us a book with words to encourage and to inspire us to this possibility that it's not abstract, it's not hypothetical. There's, a, there's an actual possibility and made possible because you had a son who walked in the fullness of it unto death and has made this tested and approved and ascended life available to every saint who will. Oh Lord, grant us the faith to desire that life above our own and, and to give up our filthy rags and our own petty ambitions whatsoever they are that you might be all in all. We bless you Lord. Oh, that you had this for us today and took Reggie to Bemidji. 
and that will not be cheated of what will have come from Reggie, will still have the benefit in the, in the appointed time. But this was the appointed time for this word, and we receive it, my God, with gratitude. May it constitute an event in our life that we'll say, we'll mark our Bibles this day, on August 27th, in the reading of the, uh, of the 37th Psalm, something happened, I transacted with God, I, I threw in the towel, I gave over the last reserve, that he might be all in all, and be glorified thereby. Thank you, my God. Turn the word into event. We thank and give you praise for our privilege today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.